Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Or Tim. Hey, Tim. Or Dave. Hey, good morning. Hey, Dave. Hey, um, hey, hey, by the way, you know, funnily enough, my friend Michael Hart, you know he's in your bibliography of your book. Oh, he is? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. Oh, what you You've made a reference to um, the book that he co-edited with uh, with uh, Brad Jersak. The one on sacrifice. Uh, what was yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's actually Brad Jersak and Michael Harden editors. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's in your yeah. bibliography. So there you go. Yeah, I wasn't really aware of who he was. You know, that's that book's funny. I uh, I found that book here at the university library. But I, le- I read the Brad Jerzak's introduction, which I really like, mm-hmm. and then I showed it to Jason, and boy, he's used it ever since. He just really loves that book, and I never have gotten back to it. I like Jerzak's, uh, I-, I think it was Jerzak's introduction, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It's very, I, I can't, I'm just off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember what it's called. Strict, strict, uh, stricken by God. Yeah, Stricken by God. That's the yeah. one. Have you been perusing my bibliography? <laughs> wow, that's about, like I said. I wanted I wanted you to do a book study for us, and that's the only part I can read. The rest is the rest is not in English. <laughs> no, just kidding. It's I'm sure it's accessible. Just it'd be I'd love to you know have someone walk walk through it. I'm giving it some consideration. You know, the next class that is uh, uh, philosophy for doing theology. Ooh. I'm looking at that. Cool. Uh, well, I, I I love to I love to drag my friend um, Nathan into that. He's the one that I've 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 got to know here. He actually lives in my town. He just finished his PhD at University of Toronto in philosophy. Oh, oh. And yeah, yeah. And he's kind of just dialed into a lot of the stuff that we're doing. But he um we meet up now and again. Socially distanced lunched lunches outside the you know tailgate parties. Yeah. But just a really clever guy, a y- young guy, you know, he's almost, he just turned 39, I think. So very young. Yeah. Press yeah. <laughs> old guys. Uh, yeah, that'd be fun. I, you yeah. Know, I do my own thing with the philosophical stuff. But, so it'd probably be good to have somebody in there that says, wait a minute, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, the other thing I was just going to mention, you know, that essay I sent you the other day on the history of, uh, the Mennonites being overrun by the Calvinists. Very fascinating, you know, that the Mennonites themselves would be overcome with this kind of stuff. Of course, whether my conclusion is legitimate, I don't know. As Matt pointed out, he said, well, wait a minute. The Orthodox Church, you know, had their own view of the atonement, and they're violent. But, of course, they were also ta- overtaken with a kind of imperialism or nationalism. Well, I'm not you, sure I said you, exactly you still listen to Matt? I thought we cut Matt off. Yeah, you know, every now and then, uh, you, got, <laughs> he just kind of appears and says stuff. and you, you Yeah, <laughs> and then mutes and runs off into the darkness. <laughs> I thought I was running off into the light, I was hoping, but... Uh, <laughs> It's good to see you guys. I was trying to get a rise out of you. I was not aware that you would. No, I know. (laughs) Paul likes to put put things uh, rather starkly sometimes (laughs) to try to get me to window. But I I was just saying that, yeah, you know, I think that I do actually, I like his, you know, what he's saying. He's saying that a violent, since the atonement and the cross is at the heart of Christian theology, no matter what, you know, sort of form of the faith, one would think that it would really matter, you know, as to like how you view God. And I think it's a very basic premise that I think is really true. You know, it's like, if you think that uh, God is the type of God who needs to torture his own virgin son in order to be satisfied, then that's probably going to inform your ethics and your understanding of who God is and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's absolutely true. But I do think that, you know, I, I like his insight that the Anabaptists were talking about theosis and other things and not really talking about the eastern tradition but my thing with paul was is like yeah absolutely we do not subscribe to any kind of violent atonement and never have 
uh, I didn't say that, and we're still violent, but I, but I did say that, I did say that, you know, I think because of our proximity to, you know, empire and, and things like that, that we've been sort of caught up in, into those things, but I don't think it's because of our atonement theology. Just one little thing I always want to mention, really interesting, there's a group I'm a part of, I don't know if any of you have seen this group in, in Facebook, it's called Wrestling with the Disturbing Parts of Scripture. And there's there's a professor there. He's got a he's a he's right here in Edmonton at, at Taylor Seminary, I think. And he's quite a hardcore Calvinist and kind of you know, violent God. But it's really interesting. He's doing a a sort of a four week Zoom class with a local uh, Anglican church, actually just ten miles down the road from me, which is funny. But here's what he said. I thought this is really fascinating. His name is Jerry Shepherd. He's probably about you know maybe around our age, Paul, a little older, maybe somewhere in there. But he said that he himself is a pacifist and, he, and nonviolent to the extent that he doesn't believe a Christian should be in the military or be a police officer. But then he went on to say, I can be a pacifist because God isn't. <laughs> that was absolutely fascinating. So, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let God do the murdering and the slaughtering, and we can therefore. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we meet all types, right? I, I haven't taken him up on it yet, but it's it's quite interesting that he would have that stance. <laughs> well, that's the that's the argument that I've heard before, and it's funny because whenever you said it like that, it helped me to almost like kind of crystallize in my mind. Because a lot of times, people will say, "Well, God can do violence because you know we're sinners, and so we don't know how to do violence apart from sin." But you know, God can do violence because He's not you know sort of infected by sin, and it's like. No, like I think that that's a total misunderstanding, right? It's like an equivocation of language, like Paul always talks about. No, it's like, righteous yeah. violence. Maybe we just need to learn what that is, and then we can do it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I was telling Paul, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading this book. John Brown. Have you guys? Are you guys familiar with John Brown? He was a great. He was an American patriot. And during his lifetime, he was the most famous American alive, other than, well, even more so than America, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln until he got assassinated. And so John Brown's big thing was, you know, he was a, he, he felt like he was called by God. I, I don't know much about his religion, but I think that he was a Congregationalist and a Methodist. And he seems to have, you know, like a strong faith. And basically he, you know, he was willing to, he said, you know, these pacifists, all they do is talk. And what we really need to do is to free these slaves. And if that means dying for them or even going to war or whatever, like that's what we have to do because he was he was sort of seeing like how horrible slavery is. And it's really interesting that he uses the golden rule as his justification, you know, that do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he says, well, you know, if I was a slave and if I was being whipped every day and forced to slave for the masters and my wife was being raped and my daughter, I would want someone to come and free me and i would want someone to come and say and, that, and i would you know and so i'm gonna do unto others as i would have them do unto me and so like he really did have like kind of like this zeal you know and so he talked to frederick douglas and all this and they had conversations about the best way to do it and i just think it's an interesting i'm not trying to be non-violent anymore but i do think that it's interesting and i'm looking forward i just got this book called cloud splitter and it's kind of like it was like um, the guy who wrote it was up for like the Pulitzer Prize. And so it's like about the life of John Brown. So it just seems like like he's like an interesting character, you know, to bring to all this because interesting to me that he would use that golden rule to say, well, that's what I would want someone to do to me. I would want them to come put a stop to this. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I'm willing to die for it. And it's, it's he just seems like such an interesting character. So just kind of a, as an I aside. Matt, I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, maybe it's on Netflix. I think it's Kevin Bacon. There's a series that's on. It's a little bit overblown. You know, it's kind of a imaginary John Brown story. But yeah, that's the way they portray him. You know, God's always telling him who to kill. And yeah, that's the thing that Malcolm X said. He's like, you know, white people, the way that they tell the story of John Brown is that he's always a madman. You know, he's this crazy person because, you know, Malcolm X says, well, of course, you know, the only the only people that white people want to agree with are the pacifists who say that the black people shouldn't rise up and do anything violent to stop their oppression. And that anybody who would do so is just a madman. <laughs> I thought it was big, bad Leroy Brown. <laughs> the baddest man in the whole damn cemetery. Oh, wait, that's, from, that's from Crocodile Dundee. Sorry. Alan and David, who would like to uh, begin? David has his mic on already. <laughs> so I get to set the standard low so that my love for my neighbor, he can just blow it out of the water. 
I decided to, in some sense, do a book review of Alexander Campbell's book. Once I started looking towards kind of peace movement, I was looking mostly at like Anabaptists and different things like that. And I had friends within the restoration movement that said, hey, um, you know that there's uh, within the restoration movement, there are those who were uh, pacifist and nonviolent. And for me, that was kind of a huge shock. And the reason I say it was a huge shock, you know, every student had to take restoration history in their undergrad at, you know, at a restoration Bible college. And then when I went to uh, grad school, the professor there wouldn't accept my undergrad class because he said it wasn't taught by him or one of his ex-students. I had to take it again, although I felt like my undergrad professor did a great job. Where Was this at CBS? Yeah, it was James North. Yeah. So I had to take it again. I say all that to kind of introduce um, this this paper. I say all that because I don't ever remember in the two years undergrad and grad school. I don't ever remember ever an emphasis on the nonviolence of some of the uh, early restoration preachers and teachers. And so I have started digging into some of their work. I just finished reading a civil government by uh, David Lipscomb, just reading, reading some of that stuff. And so with, with Campbell, I find myself more of a Stoneite at times than a Campbellite. But when I read this book, I mean, it's uh, it's Campbell's book, but it's it's written written by Craig Watts. So I was kind of a, a, astounded by it. Uh, a couple of things that stood out, and then I'll kind of highlight some of what I thought were some important points that, that were made in the book. Campbell's pacifism, I, I'll just throw this out right away. Campbell's pacifism was very much a, a part of who he was, but I think at, at times, even uh, Watts says that that. Campbell kind of regrets that he wasn't more forward with it. You know, the the Spanish-American War and then also the Civil War were times when Campbell maybe was quiet with it when he should have been more vocal. And Watts says that Campbell somewhat regretted that. As, As I try to understand Campbell more, part of, and this will also play into his pacifism, Campbell's mantra obviously was unity. At times, unity would maybe even silence him. I don't know if that's a good word or not, but for the sake of unity, he he might overlook certain things. That's not to say that Campbell was not clear on on where he stood and where he felt like the uh, the church stand. I think just at times, and maybe when he should have preached a sermon, he didn't or, or something to that effect. So just some things as, as far as what stands out um, as, as I went went through this book is uh, when it came to war, Campbell believed that Christians could not participate in war because to participate in war meant that one would be killing other Christians in other nations. I had never heard that argument before. In other words, his argument wasn't necessarily to say no on on violence uh, per se, but to say that if you have two nations that go to war, so if you have England and the United States go to war, which obviously that had happened as far as one within Campbell's earlier life, what you have is you have Christians killing Christians. And uh, Campbell believed then that Christians could not participate. And ultimately, he would say that there were Christians in every nation. So one of his reasons that you could not kill is because you you kill a brother or, or sister in Christ. Every nation, you know, had some Christians in it. So taking up arms would be killing other Christians. It's interesting because his problem was not so much nation against nation as much as it was a theological problem for the church. And I don't know that I've ever heard that argument before, and maybe there there are others that have brought it out, but um, I do think there's something to weigh in on that. So for Campbell, this was a huge theological problem as far as the church uh, doing violence against against the church. Uh, Another thing that you have to, um, or at least which I, I came to understand about Campbell as far as his pacifist views, is is that they seem to be tied in uh, with his millennial view. And uh, Campbell was a, a post-millennialist. He believed that the best way to usher in God's reign on earth was for the church to recover the, orig- the original gospel. Watts would say uh, about Campbell, he'd say he had no intention of passively waiting for the millennium, right? So Campbell's waiting for this, this uh, millennium to come but um, Watts says that 
that he didn't passively wait. He, he felt like that you needed to, to practice and, and work out those things. And, and Campbell would say that the principles of his government are to, to give them a taste of and a taste for heavenly things. In other words, so you're, you're giving a taste of what the post-millennium would look like. I, I, you know, I wrestled with that. So I'm not wrestling with his post-millennial view as, as far as that's, that's what drove some of his pacifism. It sounded a little bit kind of like an inaugurated eschatology. I, do, I don't know that Campbell would have ever used that wording or, or terminology, but he felt like uh, within his millennial view that you, you begin to give a taste for what the, the millennial would look like. He said that this view had kind of an evangelistic appeal to it as well, because people could get a picture of what the future church would look like, uh, which, you know, for him, the future would look like a, a time with, with Jesus reigning, uh, no violence, and it, it would be, again, based on unity. Campbell had a strong belief that faith and works went together. He believed that the ethics of Jesus was not just simply something to be admired, but to be practiced. Campbell rejected the line of thinking that said, or this is not a rejection, uh, he would say to conquer an enemy is to convert him into a friend. And so uh, obviously you, you can't kill, you, you can't convert an enemy that, that you kill. So he, he would go on to say all arms and modes of warfare are impotent, uh, save the arms of munitions of everlasting love. So Campbell's going to differ although they would not be pacifists, but Campbell is, is going to be starkly different than uh, Luther and Calvin. They would see violence as tools uh, to be used by God, but Campbell would have none of this. He would say, if one cannot support war by looking at the life of Jesus, then the Christian has no business in being a part of supporting any type of violence or warfare. You, you know what, I, something that as, you know, as I was reading through the book, and uh, something that I greatly appreciate about Campbell, and, and it's something that I think we've talked about in this class that's missing today, is, is that the Christianity of, of Campbell, even though we, we might be able to say there's some holes in it here or there or whatever, Campbell was a part of a renewal in the sense that there was a focus on thinking, using your mind and in systematic ways. And uh, I think that's something that has been lost uh, with, within the church today. And I think that Campbell developed then his pacifist ways through that. Something else that, that Campbell would say, he says that a Christian man can never of right be compelled to do that for the state in defense of state rights, which he cannot of right do for himself in defense of his personal rights kind of to explain that, he'd, he'd say, uh, no Christian man is commanded to love or serve his neighbor, his king or sovereign more than he loves or serves himself. In other words, if Christians can't go to war for himself, right, you know, if we're forbidden to go to war for ourselves, because there's a lot of people who are not pacifists would say, you know, okay, Christians are not allowed to go to war for themselves, right? You can't enact vengeance uh, by yourself. Only the state can do that. And of course, you could join the state in, in doing that. Probably Luther and Calvin would, would support that. But Campbell says that basically, listen, if you can't do it personally, then you can't do it for a country either. And so many Christians have conceded that we're not commanded to go to war as individuals, but have made that argument that we can go to war for our country. Campbell has no dualistic thinking in this area. If you personally can't kill then you can't kill at the state level either. Again, that's a, an, another argument that I don't know that I've heard from others. I'm sure others have said that. Also, uh, something that, that Campbell had, had focused on that I thought is very, very pertinent. And, you know, there's images of the book of Daniel that come out in this. But when Jesus says to, to Peter, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, Campbell makes the statement have not all nations created by the sword fallen by it. In other words, it's a doomed project from the beginning. And so Christians uh, should be able to recognize that, that any nation that is, is created by the sword, ultimately, if you trust Jesus's words, and, you know, and even, you know, the book of Daniel, as, as you see the different kingdoms uh, begin to fall, Campbell would say, that the, the fallacy of it is, is that it's eventually going to fall, any, any nation created in that way. And ultimately, um, I don't know that you can find a nation state that hasn't been created in that way in some, some manner.
And so violence has never proven that it works. Those who say, you know, well, pacifism doesn't necessarily work. There's a long history of uh, violence's track record. Again, going back to Campbell, and Campbell systematically looked look through these things. So this is roughly kind of a, a brief overview of uh, Campbell's book. I was super encouraged by it just because my roots don't go back as far as yours, Paul. I'm first generation within the restoration movement, but my wife's family is goes back a few generations. Well, I don't think it helps to have roots because <laughs> this part got obscured. Yeah. I'm curious a little bit as to what your evaluation or critique, you know, Campbell seems not to have a strong, in other words, his pacifism seems subject to other understandings like unity. And so I'm wondering what, what would be your critique of his understanding? Campbell's a, an interesting and confusing person. You know, so part of my critique is, is that I think there were some things that Campbell would not be silent on. You know, it, it, you, you talk about something like baptism, right? Campbell wouldn't be silent on that. But I, I think Watts uh, points out, and he does say, I, I think if, if I remember right, that he does regret at times that after he saw the devastation that took place in the different wars that, that he lived through, he regrets that he didn't say more, that he didn't make it more of a focal point. So my critique, Campbell's no David Lipscomb. You know, whereas David Lipscomb, I, I think, and we've talked about this, maybe uh, his life was threatened. I don't think Campbell's life was threatened for any of his pacifism, because I think at times he wasn't as vocal with it. And, it, and I think to understand Campbell, it falls on unity. He really wanted a unity for the church. And so he could over, I guess, overlook things. I don't know if that's a, that's a good way to put it. That was my question to you, because you I know you're reading both David Lipscomb and Campbell, and so you're finding Lipscomb the more impressive thinker? Yeah, I, I do, and I, well, let me, let me back up a little. The difference between Campbell and Lipscomb that, I, that I've kind of surveyed is, is that Campbell had a pretty high view of government, of the American government. I mean, Campbell would say that um, no nation is Christian. Campbell could agree with that. But I think Campbell also had a pretty high view of the American government, believing that somehow it would help bring in the millennium as well, uh, that Christian nations like, you know, uh, like in England or, or, or the United States could help bring in the, the new millennium. Lipscomb saw the government as a part of Babel. It was birthed out of Babel. Campbell could see Christians being involved in political stuff, but Lipscomb, you know, Christians shouldn't be involved. You shouldn't be involved with the beast. Uh, and Lipscomb actually says that one of the things that hurts the church is great thinkers within the church using it to, <laughs> using it for the kingdom of the world. So I, I sense in Campbell, he felt like there was something that the country could bring about. Now, I'm trying to vaguely remember, you know, he dies, I think in 69, 1869, the Civil War really, you know, was kind of hurtful for him. Wasn't it Campbell that had sons that he had one son went south and another that went north for the Civil War? Um, that sounds about right. I, I know Watts doesn't mention any of that. You have read both Watts and Lipscomb and Stone, and it seems like that in the, like, at the people at Lipscomb University, they are focused on Stone and Lipscomb. And Campbell, as you're describing his argument, his argument for nonviolence seemed contingent upon these arguments. Whereas for Lipscomb, it seems like the commitment to peace is just front and center, and they're not justifying it, how he has come to pacifism in those arguments. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I think for Lipscomb, and um, I'd like to do more uh, study and research on Stone, but for Lipscomb, it's a part of the gospel, you know, probably to the point where one would need to, to accept that. I don't know if that's stretching Lipscomb too far or not. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely more front and center uh, with Lipscomb. I, I wonder uh, with Watts, I think Watts was being super generous. He does point out you know, some of Campbell's shortcomings. 
but he definitely says, listen, he's in he's in this camp. It's not as strong as, as, as some of the others. I don't know how pertinent this is. I know that Stone totally rejected penal substitution. He didn't have, a, and I don't, I don't think that either Thomas or Alexander Campbell, they did not. They wanted to qualify it, I think. I'm wondering about Lipscomb. You know, I don't know about Lipscomb either. But yeah, I, I do think for, for Campbell, penal substitution was, was a part of his theology, which, you know, I, it's interesting because I think there's correlations, but it is interesting that Campbell could make that jump. And maybe it's what Tim was sharing a little bit earlier. I can be a pacifist because God isn't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. He's going to wipe out my enemies for me. I don't God's need to gonna, yeah, God's going to wipe out my enemies. And, and I wonder if that's somewhat of Campbell. Um, you know, I do think that what drove Campbell somewhat was the, the belief of restoring the ancient church, right? And this is where I, you know, I would challenge his millennial view. I, I think he felt like at the point that you could get to this certain point, you would bring in the millennium even though I highlighted his post-millennialism, because I think his post-millennialism plays into how he thinks through it, I, I think there's plenty of room to push back on it. Yeah. I, I just wanted to comment on that, that one part where you said, though, that the idea of the danger of, of engaging in war or going somewhere and that you might kill a Christian. So I guess it's okay to kill pagans and the reprobates, but let's just be careful not to kill other Christians. <laughs> That's what it sounded like. Yeah, you know, and I wonder, of course, um, you know, we can't ask him, you know, because I, I do think he felt like killing was wrong. And I wonder if he just pulled that one out of his hat, you know, and felt like killing's wrong, um, but you could make it sound more gentle. Like, uh, hey, listen, what the 9-11 terrorists did were horrible. There, there's one thing, you know, if we say, hey, listen, we can't attack Afghanistan because they have they have Christians there. The other side is, is uh, you know, hey, we, we have to love our enemies, those ugly terrorists who blew up our buildings. You probably don't get as many votes that way. I, I don't know. But yeah, no, I, yeah, I think that's, that's funny too. These guys are working from scratch in a sense. It's almost like they are unaware of an alternative understanding. I don't think they have the resources the Anabaptist resources, I can't tell that they're available. They don't have an Eastern Orthodox uh, ex exposure to alternative atonement theories. And so you almost, from where they're starting, you've got to kind of say it's an admirable thing. And this is just what repeats itself again and again. People sit down and read the New Testament and say, oh, well, pacifism is the case. Uh, and I think that's what happens with the Restoration Movement. I wonder, too, now that you bring that up, you know, if you think about it, Campbell's a radical from his childhood faith, you know, because he's come from a European theology that war was just embedded within, within what is he? He was a Presbyterian. Yeah. Um, they were used to killing and fighting one another and, and calling it from God. So uh, the point that he makes a pretty good point that, you know, what they're working with uh, they obviously, uh, they seem to have, you know, Campbell's no dummy. He studied some of the uh, the Enlightenment writers, I guess, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. so. I think there is a limitation to these guys. And it's not, the, it's not their fault, you know, in a sense. So to just focus on, you know, I think it's interesting, and I think we need to do this. But I think we can do better, it would be my point. That should always be our, our stance with any group, any church. Oh, we can do better, that we need not be constrained by the limitation of our forebears. And that's certainly true in the Christian church. This thing, this thing is still an unfolding understanding. I think the church is still an unfolding reality that we can apply New Testament Christianity to a broad range of understandings that still needs development. In other words, this transformation of the mind is not a thing that's been accomplished in the past, and we can just say, oh, we'll just refer to the past. And I think there is that sense that you get among the restorationists that, oh, we can do this. We can, we start over. Maybe we just start over. You know, we're all in a sense starting over. 
I think you know that, that, that obviously to just dismiss all of church history, I don't think they did that, but there was that tendency to just picture the church has fallen. Oh, I was going to add to like what David was saying. You know, the book that we're reading from Kreider, I mean, he, he very clearly points out that there was a long tradition and it was a part of the catechetical process, you know, to teach the love for enemies to whenever you're struck to turn the other cheek and so in other words like it is there and you i mean and i know that you know that but i don't know that they were starting from scratch in the sense that maybe maybe like in their context they were obviously we think that it's there in the tradition or we wouldn't be having this class right it, i mean it's it's there to be discovered and I, I do think that it's it's great that how these guys and you know you got to respect it you know you got to respect what these guys did campbell and lipscomb and stone and they were up against this enormous i'm sure like peer pressure i mean like david said about lipscomb you know putting his life even on the line you know i think it was lipscomb that they were threatening to to lynch and you know we feel it in our own day you know some of us have lost our jobs or our families or uh our relationships or ministries and things like that because the tide, I, I guess, is just as strong now as it was back then. And so it's, it's, it's incredible to me that during the Civil War, you know, when we were about to embark upon this nation's bloodiest war, and there were, there were men like John Brown who were saying, no, actually, you know, and this is a righteous cause, you know, the, the shedding of blood. Because I was thinking about what David was saying earlier, that, you know, someone like John Brown, his, his rationale could have very easily have been, well, you know what, these slavers aren't Christians. And so, therefore, you know, it's not that we're killing other Christians. There's no way that you could be a slaver and be a Christian. There's no way that you could be a rapist, you know, a raper of slave women or, uh, you know, whipping children and things like this and be a Christian. So I don't know if that was Brown's rationale, but I could see maybe it was. But then, of course, Tim came in, uh, you know, and, and made the great point of like, well, yeah, but we're not just called to love Christians, but we're called also to love our enemies and to do good to those. It's like, I do think that something like slavery is like a really difficult, you know, that's obviously, and so that's my point, I guess, because if there was ever a time, maybe whenever someone could maybe justify killing someone would be if they're, you know, hurting whole plantations full of powerless people. Um, but these guys had such courage to be able to say, no, this isn't, this isn't the gospel of Christ. And we're willing to, to lose our friends over it. And it's my understanding, like, didn't was, or David, maybe you found this in Watts' book. Like, how how popular was someone like an Alexander Campbell or, or these other guys, like, amongst their contemporaries in the church? Like, were they despised, or or even in the Restoration movement itself? Like, were they were they accepted, Paul or, or or David or anybody else? Like, were they was was this form of the gospel? And someone like was it Barton Stone who almost made it like a litmus test and said, hey, or maybe that was Lipscomb, I can't remember. But um, I'm just wondering how you know, how uh, sort of well-received were they within the Restoration Movement and maybe even the larger church, if we know? I don't know that that Watts uh, shares a whole lot of that. Within the church, this seemed to be, and I think um, you highlighted this maybe a couple of weeks ago, Paul, that within the church, Campbell, Campbell would not have been an oddity in the sense that other groups like the Methodist, uh, you know, with Wesley and and different ones, a lot of them were promoting a, a peace gospel. Ultimately, the Civil War would change a lot of the church's thoughts on that. The next, historically, I think for the Church of Christ, World War One would be the last that they they became heavy um, pacifist, but. I think Campbell was one of many within other denominations as well that were promoting a, a peace gospel, if I remember historically correct. I don't know, Paul. Well, let me make a statement, and then you guys can shoot it down. I think the Restoration Movement is the largest indigenous church movement in the United States. In other words, among churches, this group ranks in the top 10 numerically, but of course, the others are not uh, the Methodists and the Lutherans, and the they're not indigenous. So this this group that comes together, that there is a kind of shared understanding that is captured among many people. You know, they're coming out of all these different groups on the frontier, 
And they're basically saying, well, wait a minute, we don't need to adhere to the hierarchy of back east or whatever. And so I think that it is a popular movement. I mean, even today, you know, the restoration movement is still in the top 10 numerically. And of course, the that can, depending on how you view things, that is either a good thing or a bad thing, because I think it's also the restoration movement that has prompted the church growth movement. And it is a truly, it's an authentic American understanding. So there is that. And then Campbell is going to be, uh, people will look at him as kind of arrogant because he does his own translation of the Bible. And, you know, they say, oh, you, do, you, can't, you can't accept the one that we all believe in, the good King James Version. They are tapping in to a broad-based mass movement. They, they capture that. Uh, that. That's its strength and that's its weakness, because I think it is a movement that then has gone the way of all these movements that are indigenous. It did not have the roots that the Mennonites or the Anabaptists would, would have had. Well, thanks, David. I you know, it's funny because I didn't learn any of that, you know, and I, I took all the restoration classes from Mr. Pelfrey and then whoever else. And it's like Dr. Dahl and they, they left that part out, you know, about <laughs> these guys all being, uh, you know, nonviolent. So it's, it's very interesting. And it was uh, informative. So thank you. I only had a question for David. When are you flying down here to bring the book? <laughs> I got to talk my wife into it, but man, I want to come. I want to come. So the people that published the book, he's with the Inglewood Review, which they're out of Indianapolis there. Hmm. Uh, and so I'll have to ask him how we can get a copy down to you. Yeah, that'd be nice. Why can't we just buy it and then just like mail it? We, You're on fire, bro. David bought the last one on Amazon. That was the... Cause Oh. checking out buying it i was looking at it too and then suddenly there was none left and then david posted something <laughs> like i just bought this book and i was like oh that's the last one <laughs> suddenly david was giving a presentation on it but yes yeah, uh, <laughs> at least i got the summary of it <laughs> at first i didn't really know where i was going with this so this was like just my random thoughts politics and 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 god's kingdom and all that but I, I was listening to, to uh, I think it was Spotify or one of those, you know, like radio station things. And so I heard this song from Tom McDonald, I think he's called. I don't know what, who this guy is or anything, but he said this, that, and, I, and that's where, how I started this paper. Uh, he said, we use violence to get peace and wonder why it isn't working. That's like sleeping with a football team and try to be a virgin. I, I thought it was kind of a smart way to <laughs> express the idea that you know that is the strategy that almost you know every country has they're they're all trying to achieve peace through violence but it isn't working because you know all that violence does is create more violence so i started the paper by telling two stories one was when a drug dealer that used to live nearby uh, got shot right next to carla carla and i while we were buying tacos he died right next to us you know the second story the one from last last year when they found drugs and guns and and, and some uh bodies in our neighbor's house <laughs> you know with these stories what i was trying to tell is that we know violence uh we are surrounded by it we you know we're experiencing it every day here even though you know we don't like it and all that we understand that that's how it is because it's a uh, a world without God. The problem is that, you know, violence also happens from those who do claim to know him. And so that was where I started, you know, make this uh, comparison that many churches have fallen into using violence. And so what is, you know, what makes us different from people in the world if we're using the same, the same tools in order to achieve uh, peace? And so I, I even used a, a one example of when I was a supply preacher there at Central and you know I was sent to to this little church to to preach so I parked uh, at the end of the road and this guy knocked on my window with a shotgun and you know asking what I was doing there and minutes later he was actually one of the leaders from the church where I was preaching so <laughs> that was kind of a 
<laughs> an interesting thing. You know, there were there were several examples that I, I, I could probably tell uh, from when I was up there. But the, the thing was that, you know, while I was in the U.S., the places where I was usually scared the most was in churches because that's where I've, I actually encountered some of this, you know, type of uh, violence. You know, once we get entangled with the world, then we miss what the New Testament, you know, is trying to teach us. I think that sometimes in the Restoration Movement, we, as Axton was saying, you know, we, we sometimes ignore part of the history. Whenever we talk about violence, it's like, oh, yeah, it's those Catholics over there. But our story, you know, begins in, in Acts. So <laughs> that's not our story. And so we kind of just like ignore it. But even in, in Restoration Movement churches, you know, we have this, this issue. And I mean, like this example, that was in a Restoration Movement church <laughs> where I was uh, pointing at it with the shotgun. And so it's not just the, you know, Constantinian era that fell into this, but the church has rejected the lamb several times by, by marrying with the, with the emperor, you know, whether Roman or American or whatever. And so because of that, we fail to see that we have also made some type of uh, compromise. It's interesting even to see, you know, when, when I was in the U.S. or even here in Mexico, I've had many conversations where in, in churches, you know, with people who are Christian, who place more an emphasis on, on the amendments or the Constitution than, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about which rights I have than actually what am I doing for, for my neighbor. And, you know, like even during elections, we see it in every, you know, in every country. We're always fighting over, you know, which is the right side, you know, the right side of <laughs> political, political disputes. But we're not driving people's attention to the kingdom of God and saying, well, yeah, that is the right side. <laughs> uh, all these other sides are always going to be bad because they're always going to have these, the, these issues. And so the problem is the church has conformed uh, to nationalism. And that's just not, you know, something that happened during Constantine. It happens today. And so I, I pointed out in the paper that it's kind of funny that, you know, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, one of the temptations had to do with political power. And so as Christians, we usually, you know, we're, we're happy, we cheer that, you know, Jesus did not succumb to these temptations, but then Christians fight to acquire political power. <laughs> we seek for that uh, you know, to fall into that temptation. Part of my point there was that following Jesus is not only, you know, possible to do apart from politics, and I was trying to say that maybe it is necessary to do so, because once we start falling into nationalism, then we learn how to reject others and even feel, you know, uh, proud about it. So I used the quote even uh, from Gandhi there that, you know, he said, I don't re reject your Christ, I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ, which is a, like a punch in the gut <laughs> for us Christians. Uh, and it's sad to see that, you know, the early disciples understood Jesus, you know, was the head of the church. And so, you know, they understood this kind of pacifism. But at some point, the church uh, seems to have been, been, you know, severed from head. And so as a result, we became one of the most violent religions in history. I think it was uh, Chesterton who said that, you know, the way of Jesus has not been tried and found unfruitful. It has been found difficult and left untried. <laughs> so we've really not experienced God's kingdom in that sense because we, we have conformed to the world instead of the pattern that Jesus established. Jesus taught to love our, our enemies, and there's no ambiguity, you know, to those words. You know, you cannot kill someone you love or, or be an accomplice to to his killing but most christians would think well yeah it is possible <laughs> yeah, there's no problems like tim was saying as long as it's those pagans over there you know that's, there's no problem but you know when jesus says love your enemies uh, that you know pretty much covers it all <laughs> so you know you cannot kill somebody and and say you're not disobeying jesus teaching I pointed out that to engage in violence means to reject the eschatological hope of the new creation in Christ. Because there's not only just an incompatibility between killing and loving, but loving opposes killing. Death and life are opposing, you know, categories. 
And so war and Christ are opposed to each other. You know, where there is eternal life, death cannot coexist. And so to kill somebody or being an, an accomplice of his murder, then, you know, means to reject the loving and, and peaceable life of Christ. At that point, I used, it, I used two verses, which I changed the wording a little bit. One was Romans 1. And I said, you know, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in war so that peace may increase? Of course not. And then, you know, I used uh, Matthew 26, 52. Uh, you know, when Jesus said, put your gun back in its place, uh, for all those who take up a gun shall perish by the gun. And so, you know, we can imagine that the church and its history would look very different if we actually follow Christ's words there. And I think that most of the problem is that we get involved in these things because we want to change the world. And so there's nothing in wanting to, to make a, a change for the best uh, of our surroundings. But the problem is that uh, without Jesus or with a mix of politics and Christianity, we're really not doing those kind of changes. We're just falling into the, in, into the trap. So I, I think that one does not necessarily need the other. Politics are not about Jesus, and Jesus is not about power and, and violence. And so once we become entangled with politics, even if it's, you know, for the, the better for our surroundings, uh, we might be losing uh, many of our Christian values. We're compromising uh, our values uh, when we get involved in politics. And so we can even see examples in, in how, you know, the money is handled in, in any country, any any kingdom, you know, no worldly kingdom would spend the money on on the gospel or or in expanding God's kingdom or helping the poor. And so, why why should a Christian be involved in politics if they're going to be, you know, such a waste of time and money? As history has shown over and over again, once the church gets entangled with worldly kingdoms, the church becomes its core. Now we are being used by the by, by the state instead of the other way around. You know, many people would at this point say, can nonviolence will be enough to save us from violence? And <laughs> I would say, you know, well, anything else? <laughs> uh, if we keep using violence, we're just making more violence. I used an example there too of myself. Like, I, you know, I'm from Mexico and I love Mexico, but I also have a lot of American friends. So I, I love the U.S. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with, with that. But you know, what happens if one nation decides to, you know, declare war on the other? Now I have to make a choice. <laughs> am I with the U.S. or am I with, with Mexico? So maintaining loyalty to both would be impossible for me. You know, as Jesus said, you know, you cannot serve two masters at the same time. And so I think that at some point we have to decide, well, if the kingdom, the, the kingdoms of the world are, you know, against the kingdom of God, which kingdom am I, am I choosing? Neutrality cannot be an option since we already know which nation will win, and that's God's kingdom. You know, I wrapped it up with the example of, you know, when the religious leaders were confronting Jesus with the question of paying taxes to, to Caesar or not. And so I pointed out that that was a political question, but also a religious one, since, you know, Caesar was considered a, a god. And so I, I rephrased the question of these leaders by saying, well, what, what they were really saying, it was like, should we pledge allegiance to a Roman God or not? And so if Jesus said yes, you know, of course, he would be a traitor to Jews and God. But if he would say no, you know, he would get in trouble with Rome. And so what he does is, you know, ask for, for a coin. Well, we know that part of the, the story. But, you know, he says to, we, we should render, you know, give, give uh, Caesar what, what's his, you know, what's in his image on that coin and give God what's God's. And so, you know, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, it's a way of saying, well, give to Caesar what is made in the image of Caesar and give God what is made in God's image, which is our whole self. And so, you know, Jesus did not compromise at the Jews' questions. You know, he did not say, well, let's vote for, you know, Tiberius and make Israel great again. <laughs> you know, he preached like the prophets and got killed for it. Uh, he pointed out that there was something wrong with the world, and, and so we should not participate on its ways. And so his life was a witness of, of God's kingdom, and, and, and it was an opposition to, to worldly kingdoms. And so we as Christians, you know, it's not just about expressing our opinions on what the government should do or should not do. Uh, but as Christians, we are called to 
show what God's kingdom is, especially by, you know, maybe sacrificing our, our money or sacrificing our time uh, to help the homeless, to help the hungry, to help, uh, you know, the lost, to help the uh, discriminated. And so participating in, in the world's violent ways uh, in any shape or form is to conform to this world. You know, that would be going against to what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Participating in the world's uh, violent ways would be to exchange our vocation as God, God's image bearers for the world's image. And so I concluded by saying, you know, that participating in, in the world's violent ways, it's, you know, to give to Caesar what is God's. Well, thanks, Alan, for sharing all that. That was uh, really good. I think one of the things that just jumped out at me as you were talking was just the, the reminder that this whole course has done for me is just this radical difference that the kingdom values really are. And I was thinking of, just as you were talking about the, the Sermon on the Mountain, I was thinking of how the church did, if you remember the story of the Inquisitor and Dostoevsky, the church got it all wrong, or, or Jesus got it all wrong. And remember, he came along and he was saying, like, you, you screwed up, Jesus. You, you should have, you know, the whole, we all know the story. It's an amazing story. And it's really one of those major pieces where the Inquisitor comes and, and, and is going to fix the mistakes that Jesus made. And we've been doing that. We've been doing that for you know, close to 2,000 years. But yeah, that was, that was really good, Alan. It just made me think of um, how, you know, there's a lot of, we, to, to use that anthropologist term, we, we need a thick description. We've really got to go down deep into this stuff and really understand that Jesus wasn't here to just try and usher us into heaven and ignore what's going on in the world. Ignore, you know, I mean, we, we're in the middle of another conflict right now in the Middle East. Again, you know, tragic. It's, it's just, you know, the UN's going to jump in. But just, I know it's a small, I mean, it's a small in terms of the, the, the grand scheme of things. Where this isn't World War One or World War Two or Kosovo, but still it's tragic because people are being killed. And I don't even want to say innocent. We often talk of innocent people because we've actually got a, a gang war going on in Vancouver right now. We've had in the last 15 days about seven or eight brazen shootings in the public. Um, one at the airport where they actually were shooting bullets at the police, you know, so it's, it's, we're not Canada just because we have maybe stricter gun laws. We have the same things happening here. But what's sad is that this, the, the, often the media will say, well, but, you know, they could have hit an innocent person. Well, everyone's doing the best they can with what they have. So it's, it's, it's okay if the gangsters kill each other, just, just leave the rest of us alone. It's like, no, it's not okay if anybody kills anybody. You know, we've got to somehow find ways to have a rapprochement. We've got to find a way to be able to, let's sit down and just talk out our differences. And uh, that's what we've got to offer the world. Yeah. I wonder, um, there's a couple of things you, you, you talked about. You had mentioned this phrase, and I forget how you used it now, but you were talking about violence in the church. Oh, I know. It was with, the, you know, you show up, some guy with a shotgun at you or whatever, and then you find out, you know, you're, you're having communion with them. I found that, you know, very intriguing, very interesting. And I wonder, I don't know if you thought about this much, and it's, I'm just start, starting to pique my interest as well, because Tim had said something that, you know, it's just not about just going to heaven, right? So I wonder if this whole discussion tied in with it is our eschatological view. How we see what God is doing will shape if we're simply just going to heaven, then, you know, then we do the old Marine slogan, which is um, kill them all and let God sort them out, right? Because that's all that's really important. And so I, I just wonder, I don't know if you've, if you've had any thoughts on that, Alan, or, or anybody else, I, I guess, but I just feel like this goes so deep. And I feel like the church really doesn't want to have those, those deep discussions. I, I think you're right. You know, I've talked to several people down here, you know, from different churches that, yeah, I think their eschatology, it's a huge influence on, on how we treat our surroundings. Because, you know, most people who I've talked with here are, are Calvinistic. Their theology is Calvinistic. And so, yeah, I mean, it's every time we talked about, like, some of the things that we do as church, like going to clean, you know, some of the streets or, or, or the beaches and things like that. And they're like, well, what for? This world's going to be destroyed anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, destruction is just like, you know, it's going to happen eventually. So if we do some of it, we're just ushering the, 
God's kingdom a little bit quicker because <laughs> we're destroying it a little bit faster. So, and even, you know, some of the things that I've heard, it was just like, God would not allow us to destroy this world completely because that's his, you know, his thing. So, it, you know, he's going to come right before we, we do it ourselves. So if we are doing it right now, it's just like a way of making him come faster because we're getting, we're, we're destroying this world, you know, pretty quick. That's back to my thing. We don't have to, dis- we can take care of the world because God's going to destroy it. <laughs> See, I, think, I think eschatology has a lot to do with, with it. So, yeah. There's so many things feeding into this, but the claim that it's maybe too simplistic, but kind of thinking as the last thought of this class is that you could compare that what takes place in a kind of illicit romantic relationship, which is actually the illustration that Paul is using in Romans 7. And in that, you know, the kind of Zizekian reading of Paul is that love is a kind of symptom of the law. That is, well, you know, who I am deep within myself, I can't possibly recognize myself in that law. And so the only way that I'm going to encounter this deep love is through a transgressive love relationship. I hope you're hearing the lie in all this. In other words, and so the love becomes a symptom. It's a kind of lure But isn't that the same structure that we're getting here with peace? That peace is almost a symptom of war. That we keep doing this thing. We just cycle through violence, either nationally or individually. And it's almost like there's a perverse understanding of love that would make someone go out and continually have illicit sexual encounters. But isn't there also an illicit understanding of peace that would cause someone to continually engage in violence? In other words, our problem is that we do not have a positive understanding of either love or peace, and we're only going to get that in Christ, that this is not simply a lure, a kind of negation of the law or passage beyond, you know, the norms of peace or whatever, you know, how we look at it. But in fact, that it's only in Christ that there is a presence of God. That's what we're claiming, that the on, that ontologically we have access to love and peace and identity in Christ. And that is the only foundation. Uh, upon which to establish peace. And all these other systems, these meaning-generating systems, they're all, the structure is always the same. People sin for the same reason, whether that sin is having an illicit uh, affair or engaging in violence. That is, it's the same sort of lure in which the goal is actually a symptom of a disease and the goal is already inadequate. Alan had one uh, story uh, I liked, and that is Tony Campolo tells. The, the American soldier goes out, and he's uh, consigned to killing off the German wounded, which is already illegal. I don't, I don't know what that was about. But he runs into a tired German soldier, and uh, the guy says, wait a minute. Can we pray? Or, you know, can I pray? And they, then they get to talk, and, you know, they're both Christians, and they share some Bible verses, and they share pictures of the family, and then they pray together. And then the American guy gets up and shoots the German in the head. You know, that's the force that would, that, that would compel someone to just erase another person's humanity when it's right there, that there, there's so much that feeds into that. It's been a great class. I've sure enjoyed, uh, sure enjoyed doing this. Yeah. I just want to say thank you so much, Paul, and everyone being a part of it. I've loved it. It's been, like I say, really challenging and kind of giving me some impetus for what I'm going to be thinking about over the next few weeks. Thanks, guys. See you, see you again soon, I hope. See you tonight. Bye-bye. Bye. Good night. Bye.
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.